Welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Downs. I'm a fourth grade teacher, PhD student at Utah State University, and someone who just wants to know more about reading. This podcast is about bridging literacy research into practice. Every episode, you'll hear from a literacy researcher about their work, why it matters, and how to turn it into practice in your classroom. Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I'm very excited to have you here listening to this episode. I titled it 20 Years of NRP 2000, which seemed fitting for episode 20. I didn't necessarily plan it that way. It's just how the cookie crumbled. But before we get to the show, just a few announcements. First, the Teaching Literacy Podcast is now available on Spotify, which is something I've been working on for a while now, and I'm super excited that it is now on Spotify. So if you use Spotify for music and or podcasts, make sure to go check out Teaching Literacy Podcast on Spotify. And then second, I just want to share a heartfelt thanks to the listeners and the guests of the podcast. We've been doing the podcast for almost a year now. I've just been blown away with the caliber of guests that have joined us on the show and their generosity with their time, and then the kind feedback that we've received from listeners. So thank you very much. The show's received some pretty remarkable growth the last six months. I'm grateful that folks are finding value in learning about literacy research, and I'm really excited to see where the next year takes us. So thank you. If you're a new listener or someone who has been around for a while, I would encourage you to go and check out some of the early episodes of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. There's some great episodes on a variety of topics, and I'm confident you will find things that will benefit your teaching in your classroom. All right, let's get to the show. So if you've attended a literacy conference or read a book on reading instruction in the past 20 years, I would bet money that you saw the National Reading Panel discussed, critiqued, cited or otherwise just mentioned, but what was the National Reading Panel, commonly referred to as NRP 2000, why was it needed, and is it still relevant 20 years later? Today I discuss these questions and more with a member of that panel, Dr. Tim Shanahan. Dr. Shanahan is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago and the author of more than 200 publications over the last four decades Dr. Shanahan is an excellent communicator. I learned a lot about NRP 2000 by talking with him. I think you'll find that what we talk about today is very relevant to your classroom still 20 years later after that report was released. Once the show is over, make sure to stick around for my two cents on the conversation. Dr. Tim Shanahan, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. How you doing, Jake? You've been influential in literacy research for the past four decades, Dr. Shanahan. How did your path into education begin, and then how did you choose to eventually end up doing uh, research liter- researching in literacy? Uh, you know, it actually started, uh, you know, most people in this field, uh, uh, you know, they start out as teachers, and then eventually they kind of figure out they want to be reading teachers, and then they they kind of you know move along. I I actually started in reading from the very beginning. I I was uh, tutoring as a I guess I was a college sophomore. As a college sophomore, I was tutoring inner city kids in literacy. Uh, that was more than fifty years ago. 
And uh, I, people kept saying I was doing a good job, but I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I wasn't in education. That wasn't my field of study. I was in political science. I was going to go a whole different way. So I, because people were saying I was doing such a good job, I got curious and I took a class in reading instruction and started hanging out with the professor who was teaching the class, who was a very uh, good uh, uh, reading consultant at the time. And so he would literally, even though I was, I guess I was 19 years old, he would take me out consulting with teachers and principals. And so I've been doing this for a very long time. Wow. Yeah. You got initiated young if, if you know, you were 19 doing, uh, you know, consulting stuff. That's excellent. So I went so, off and taught and then, you know, went and got my PhD and thought I was going to be a curriculum director, but ended up getting sucked in on the research side. So today we're talking about the findings from the National Reading Panel, which was published in 2000. Can you give us an overview of what NRP 2000 was and then your individual contribution to the project? Sure. Well, you have to, first of all, put it in context a little bit that the 1990s were a, a period of a, a, a very set, a, a divisive set of arguments in the reading field. Uh, it's what the news magazines at the time labeled the reading wars. And, uh, you know, these were arguments over a whole bunch of things. You know, should you use textbooks or shouldn't you use them? Should you teach phonics or shouldn't you teach? Is it okay to teach spelling or is that a bad thing? And, and it was, you know, everybody was running around saying, I'm right, do it my way. The research says, and confidence, uh, the public confidence in educators started to drop. We didn't seem like we knew what we were talking about uh, since everybody was at everybody else's throats. And so in 1997, uh, the U.S. Congress passed a law uh, asking that a, a uh, ordering that a panel be put in place to make a determination of fact. What is it that the, the research actually says? We were to give no opinions, make no recommendations. <laughs> in fact, by law, we're not allowed to. We weren't allowed to. We were to make a, a determination of fact of what the research actually had to say. And so they, uh, in, in 1998, the uh, U.S. Department of Education and the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development uh, selected a panel and uh, put them in place. And over the, a two-year period, we uh, worked on uh, essentially trying to figure out what the research literature had to say. My role in it, I was, you know, just, you know, one of, uh, well, there were 50, there were to be 15 panelists. Uh, one resigned right after the first meeting, <laughs> wisely. <laughs> he got out of the way. And, uh, you know, 14 of us soldiered on. My, uh, you know, so I was, you know, just one of the group, but I ended up, um, there were, we broke into different sub panels to do the work. And I chaired the, let's see, there was a scientific panel that sort of directed the overall work. And I was in charge of that. Uh, there was another uh, panel on alphabetics that looked at phonics and phonemic awareness. And that was led by Linnea Airy, but I was a member of that panel. And I headed up the work on fluency and, and looking at what different ways that we encourage kids to read and whether those improve kids' reading achievement. So I headed those things up. You know, beyond that was just a panelist along with everybody else. So did you and the other 13 panelists, did you, did you have an idea that this would be as influential as it was? Was there a sense of that or or was it just kind of a, this is a 
government bureaucratic thing that, that we're doing? What was sort of the feel? I certainly thought it was going to be highly controversial and highly visible. I remember when I was invited to be on the panel, I said, oh, this sounds like a lot of fun. Everyone's going to be calling us names and you know, so on. But I don't think I understood the gravity of it. I don't think I understood the numbers of dollars that we were going to impact or how how influential this was going to be. And I certainly don't think any of the other panelists did either. I think we thought it was important. Uh, we did think it was going to be visible, but it ended up, well, I mean, it's, it continues to influence education, not just in the United States, but really all over the world. So that's pretty important. <laughs> I like that you already touched on, you know, sort of that landscape of the of the 90s. Is there any more information you could give us about that that literacy landscape 70s, 80s and 90s of, you know, were these did these divisions sort of develop, you know, separate from each other or are they offshoots or how did that milieu kind of come together and and why did it get so fevered on both sides? In the 1960s, we, I think education, uh, for any number of reasons, uh, started to devolve into something less traditional than it had been. Uh, this was the time of the Vietnam War. This was the time of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Counterculture, you know, drug use and counterculture, and all kinds of, of of movements that were essentially trying to throw off decades of tradition. And education was affected by that, just like everything else was. Uh, that was a piece of it. I also think there was a a very conscious sort of opposition to things like the Vietnam War. That you know, they essentially education was going to loosen up. Uh, you know, we were being too rigid. We were, you know, being too, you know, stuck in the past. So I think in a lot of ways, that was sort of the uh, the birth of, of some of or, or rebirth of this because education tends to move in that pendulum kind of fashion. And there was this, this you know, sort of liberation <laughs> ideology that was, was there. And it was very exciting and it was, you know, fascinating that there were ideas about, you know, not really having regular schools and having kids kind of teach themselves and, and all these. And they were fascinating to me as a young person. They were fascinating to a lot of young people at the time. Open schools where you wouldn't have any walls and no more barriers <laughs> and so on. And so that's sort of where it begins. And, and uh, over time, uh, a, a whole bunch of things devolve as you go through the 70s and 80s. In the 1980s, uh, it, it evolved into what becomes known, I think, as the whole language movement, uh, which no one can really define for you very well because it sort of was in the eye of the beholder. Uh, you know, I think initially the idea of whole language was you would have reading and writing and speaking and listening. And, and you know, that it was whole language in the sense like you weren't going to just teach reading. You were going to actually open it up and teach all of these, uh, which to me made great sense. And I think it still makes sense to a lot of people, uh, that aspect of it. But it also devolved in a, into a kind of... Um, we're against any kind of, of uh, direct instruction. And this really reaches its epitome in the mid-1980s, mid to late 1980s, when the state of California adopts a, uh, 
a language policy, a, a, a reading policy that's really whole language centered. And they do things like ban spelling instruction. And you can't use state money to buy things like phonics programs. And you can't, you know, you, you have to use programs, but the programs can't uh, change the language of the text that they're going to have little kids reading. And so the texts are going to be very hard initially. And, uh, you know, on and on and on with all these things that you have to do. And, and you know, some teachers pushed back against that, but the state was absolutely certain this was the way to go. And they, they, it's funny because this is sort of supposed to be bubbling up from the, the the grassroots, but it's being really imposed by a state, you know, bureaucracy in this case. California is an extremely influential state. Uh, they have something like 10% of the school kids in the country, which means they they buy 10% of the desks and 10% of the school books and, and so on. And so uh, if they say that that's what the school books have to be like, then in Utah and Illinois and so on, that's what the school books are likely to be like. And and so uh, again, there was some pushback, but I think most people thought, well, this is interesting or this is exciting. Um, in the early 1990s, finally, you know, we, we you know have gone through this whole thing. Now all these states are moving to this whole languagey kind of uh, approach. And then in 1991, the U.S. Congress allows something that they'd never allowed before. Uh, the national assessment had been in place since the 1960s, there to monitor how the schools were doing. They were never allowed to test a particular state. They could only make statements about the country as a whole or region. So the West is doing well, but the South isn't doing so well. And the Northeast is great, but the Middle West is struggling. They could do that, but they couldn't say Michigan's doing better than Illinois or, you know, California is outperforming Nevada. And that first year, they I think they tested uh, something like 45 of the states and California came out at the bottom. And that isn't what Californians thought, where they thought they were educationally. Uh, and boy, did that set off a furor. And, and so anyone who'd been pushing back and saying, hey, wait a minute, kids need explicit instruction. Kids need phonics. We should be using school books. It's okay to teach spelling, you know, all that kind of stuff. All of a sudden, they were heard. <laughs> it became, you know, the, the, the state legislature in California stepped in and, and, and essentially said, you can't use that, that you know, approach anymore. Uh, and now, now there's a huge argument. Now you get the reading wars and people are really vocal and angry. And, you know, if you're a teacher who's, let's say you're in your first five years, you've spent three or four years learning to teach this particular way. And all of a sudden the state legislature is saying, you're doing it wrong. You've got to change that. You know, that teacher's kind of looking and going, I've invested a lot in this, <laughs> you know, wait a minute. Uh, you know, if you're an old timer and you were mad about the change in the first place, you know, now it's sort of, you know, I was mad about it before, but now I can be really vocal. So everybody kind of went, around the twist everybody started doing i'd say being unprofessional as a as a group we didn't behave well and uh, at that stage uh the public started noticing and this the public really started sounding off and and uh when that happened the government had never stepped in in education this way it's done it in some other fields it's it's done it in medicine 
you know, sometimes you'll get some, all of a sudden there are a whole bunch of cancer victims who are traveling to Mexico because they're, they want to get some particular treatment that the FDA hasn't approved here. And they're angry and they don't think it's fair and they're writing their congressman and what do you do? And, and what Congress has done in those kinds of situations is they order a, a, a panel in place to make a scientific decision so that it's out of their hands. <laughs> they get out of the political part and the decision gets made whether you can force insurance companies to pay for this treatment or not. And, and that kind of thing happens. And I think the most recent one of those I've heard is, you know, how often can women have mammographies, uh, you know, uh, breast cancer checks and who's going to pay for those? And, you know, uh, and so they have a panel who sits down and, and looks at the research on that. And so they thought this would be the same kind of thing that they'd put an educational panel together, a number of scientists, those scientists would make uh, judgments as to what the research said. And then the world would go on, you know, you would, uh, everyone would know what they're supposed to do and, and uh, states and the federal government in programs that they funded would fund accordingly. It ended up being more complicated than they thought it would be. <laughs> <laughs> that's all fascinating the, the, that link between practice and policy and research sort of all just creating this this perfect storm so you know you mentioned it was designed to be a panel of, of scientists making non-biased recommendations and i think that's an important as we talk about the framing of of nrp 2000 it's it's apparent that the panel went through a very rigorous review of including studies and excluding studies to make sure that the outcomes that they that they showed were as you know as as accurate and reflective of, of what the literature was saying as possible. So can you describe a little bit of that rigorous process so listeners can have an idea of how the process worked? Uh, sure. And it it it's it started out probably a little less rigorous than it ended up. <laughs> um, you know, when we were first put together, I, I think a number of the panelists thought that what we were really going to be doing was essentially taking all of our knowledge and all of our experience and making recommendations for what should happen and not really understanding that we were to formally and were required by law to formally review the research, which is the reason why one of the members left immediately. It was like, I don't want to do all of that work. Uh, and so in, at the very first meeting, we, we selected some topics that we thought should be pursued and people were kind of yeah we could do that and we can break into groups and do these reviews and so on uh not really understanding the 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 ins and outs of having to do a real formal scientific review by the second meeting <laughs> you know a couple months later when we came back to washington at that point uh we knew a lot better uh, you know we we you know read the law more carefully and, you know, gotten some guidance from NICHD and so on. And at that stage, we decided that we needed to revisit our initial ideas about what topics to go after and, and maybe regroup in some different ways. And we literally had a day long meeting where we did nothing but nominate topics and talk them out. And we had a whole process that we used to select the topics that we were going to pursue. And we hit on eight topics that we were going to um, uh, study and who was going to do the study. And um, 
And then at that point, it became obvious we needed a, a sort of a scientific uh, direction. You know, somebody had to lead that. And, and so that was, um, they asked me if I would do that. And I agreed to, to play that role. And Sally Shaywitz joined me in that. And, and uh, at that stage, it was apparent to us that we needed a methodology. We needed something that was going to unify all the groups so that each group was doing the same kind of work. And so uh, I drafted a set of, of uh, essentially rules. You know, this is how we search the literature. This is, you know, what allows you to reject a study. You know, if it has these characteristics, it has to be included in. Here's how you have to analyze the data. And, and again, we had a, a day long meeting and this meeting required, I, this, we literally went through every sentence, every phrase, every word in this document that I drafted and people voted on it. Uh, you know, would change the language and so on and to make it what they wanted. By the end of that day, we had our methodology. Um, <laughs> the, it turned out the federal government thought we would be already done with the report by that point. Uh, so in medicine, when you do this kind of a thing, usually there are like five or six studies on the topic that you're going to make the decision on. Everybody reads it before the meeting, you know, those studies. You sit in a room, you, you hash it out, you figure out what it means, and, and you, you, you're ready to write your report. In, ed in, in education, we, we don't have four or five really huge studies. We have hundreds of little studies all on different parts of the problem. And, and so they just never dealt with anything like that. They didn't understand that we had really like 100,000 studies to sift through to figure out what was... Uh, you know, relevant to the questions and what was appropriate to answering the, the questions. And so they came to us at the end of that day and they said, we're in trouble because Congress is passing a law right now as we speak where they're going to spend something like $250 million on reading programs for the country and they have to follow what you say is scientific and you're not going to be done. Uh, and, and so you might get disbanded. We we don't need you. Uh, but they, they decided uh, what they would do is take the report that we'd done on our methodology, and they took that to Congress and said, can they have another year? And Congress looked at it and said, wow, this is a lot of work. This is impressive. Yes, they can have. So we, we were supposed to have less than a year. We ended up with two years uh to to do the work but we we literally had a written document that laid out all the methodology and that was approved by all the the people on the panel so you couldn't do things like say this isn't coming out the way i want it to you know can i change the rules uh all the rules were set before we even started doing the searches um and that's extremely important that's super interesting that it took end up, that ended up taking so much longer. But yeah, hundred thousand studies to sift through. That's no, that's no small task. Those are irrelevant. Most of those don't have anything to do with the specific questions you're asking, or maybe they do, but they're a poorly done study that you can't use. Maybe they have some fatal flaw. And and so you know, a lot of people say, well, they had to read a hundred thousand studies. We didn't read anything like a hundred thousand studies. We we reviewed really about five to 600 studies, which is a lot, but it's, you know, you, but to get those studies, you have to go through everything else to find them. 
Yeah, um, that sifting process and, and inclusion criteria and everything. So let's let's transition to the, the reports of some of the subgroups. Uh, you mentioned that there was eight. Uh, we'll touch on four today. There's, you know, I mean, each each one of these subgroup reports could be its own podcast episode, the truth be told. So we're, we're going to touch on a few of them, though. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is phonemic awareness. The panel recommended phonemic awareness practices uh, as being effective in helping kids learn to read. What specifics about the practice appeared to be more or less effective uh, that the panel found? Well, you know, in this case, we, we had, uh, I can't remember if it was 51 or 52 studies, but we had, you know, quite a substantial research base on the teaching of phonemic awareness. Uh, at the time, there were states that were starting to mandate phonemis, phonemic awareness instruction. There was a big pushback in the reading community from some people saying this was really only something that dyslexic kids needed. This wasn't for regular classroom use. So there were a ton of questions about uh, you know, whether this made sense. The basic idea of phonemic awareness was that given that reading is a a, uh, a, an alphabetic language, meaning that they, the, the letters or you know, the symbols of the written symbols are there to represent not the meanings, but the sounds of the language. There, there had been a number of studies showing that young children often have trouble actually hearing those language sounds within words. They, they can hear just fine, but perceiving those, those you know, fine gradations of sound within words is, is a, a tough thing for a little kid to do. Given that, I mean, I'd been a first grade teacher. I can remember trying to teach phonics and it would be like, sometimes the kids just didn't seem to get what I was talking about. And so the notion of this, this instruction was that somehow it would, uh, uh, you know, if you taught kids this, they'd be able to perceive these sounds, they would learn to decode more rapidly and that would improve their reading. That was the theory of it. Um, Nobody really knew. There had been a number of studies on it. People were starting to market programs around it, even though we didn't have any kind of definitive answer. And so we went through and looked at the studies and, and found a number of interesting things. Uh, but the most basic was that some kind of explicit phonemic awareness instruction in kindergarten and first grade and with older remedial readers who were struggling in phonemic awareness was beneficial. Uh, they, the kids. If you taught phonemic awareness, one, they did better in phonemic awareness. They, they became, you know, they, they, that's not a bad thing, you know, if you're trying to teach kids to perceive the sounds and now they can perceive the sounds, but that isn't enough for us to have come in with a positive finding. It's important, but it's not enough. Uh, the kids uh, learn to uh, uh, recognize words, to read words uh, and non-words more accurately, uh, more quickly. Uh, than other kids, uh, their reading comprehension went up. And so, gee, that's really pretty cool. That's, you know, that's a good thing. So, okay, if you're going to teach that, you know, do you have any guidance for people on that? Well, one of the, the pieces of guidance, we had looked at, I said, 50 some studies. Uh, they gave in those studies anywhere from as little as an hour of instruction to as much as 90 hours of instruction. And so we were kind of curious if how much instruction you got in it mattered. And what we found was that the studies in which kids had gotten about 14 to 18 hours of phonemic awareness instruction, that, that was sort of seemed to be a sweet spot that kids did better than if they got more or less. 
if you think about it, 14 to 18 hours is about 15 minutes a day for a semester of kindergarten, you know, which gives you some kind of a sense. Now, we didn't conclude, therefore, everyone should teach 14 to 18 hours because, of course, there are kids who don't need that much of it. There are kids who, man, I gave him 18 hours and he's still struggling to hear the sounds. Should I quit? No. <laughs> you know, But, you know, if you're going to buy, a, say, a kindergarten phonemic awareness program, I'd certainly make sure that it had at least 18 hours of teaching built into it. Right. I mean, uh, you know, and, and, and maybe some more available for those boys and girls. So you get to the end of that little program and go, hey, they're still struggling with this. They need help. Uh, and so that would be an example of, of some of the kinds of things that we found out about it. Um, some of it is obvious. Um, you know, again, you think you're, you're, you're teaching five-year-olds and six-year-olds. One of the things we found is keep it simple. Don't try to teach too many skills at one time. Well, you know, anyone who teaches kindergarten or first grade knows you need to keep lessons fairly simple. You know, if you try to make things really complicated, they fall apart on you really fast. It's no different with phonemic awareness instruction. Uh, it's really helpful to mix letters in. The kids should be learning their letter names simultaneously and to recognize the letters. Uh, programs that included that did better than ones that didn't. You know, you do phonemic awareness by ear, but learning that those letters are there and, and eventually maybe even using those letters as kind of counters to, you know, when you're, you're you know, trying to show that you're hearing those different sounds. It might be useful to actually use the letter sounds to start moving them into phonics and so on. And, and, and so, uh, you know, essentially we were finding that these were things that could be done in a regular classroom by regular teachers because they had been in the studies and they were effective. And so phonemic awareness is, there's so much research on it. There's even more on it now, but there's so much research on it that the conclusion that that should be part of any kindergarten or first grade reading program is a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that phonemic awareness was something that had been controversial, you know, prior to this. Um, I, you know, I'd known about phonics and, you know, sort of the controversy around there, but I, I didn't know about phonemic awarenesses. You know, when I started teaching uh, first grade in the early 1970s, we didn't know anything about that. That studies were just starting to be done that, you know, noticing that this even existed as a skill, uh, whether it had any implications for reading. People didn't have any idea at that time. Uh, and so it was never part of programs. And uh, then as happens so often in education, as soon as somebody starts saying, hey, this correlates with how well kids read, all of a sudden there's some commercial venture saying you can buy this and, and teach it and it'll all be good for you without really trying it. So <laughs> it was controversial in those ways. <laughs> yeah. So let's switch to uh, to phonics instruction. Uh, you already touched on, you know, whole language and then, you know, kind of a whole language approach and then a, a phonics approach. And the panel had several important uh, implications for phonics instruction. So first, let's let's kind of get to the, the core of it. Why did the panel recommend phonics over whole language type approaches? Well, um, you know, that's usually how the, uh, the, the question is posed, Jake, but it's actually not the way we approached it. Um, very much like with any of these other elements that we looked at, we weren't looking to see, you know, is, is say phonics better than whole language? Because whole language, again, is just this kind of amorphous thing that everybody has their own definition of it, their own view of it. 
what we were interested in is do programs that include phonics do better than programs that don't and you know so if you have a regimen of instruction uh, where you have the kids, you know, reading big books and, and uh, you know, doing lots of writing and so on. And, you know, oh, you know, I, this is my whole language classroom and you're not teaching phonics, we'd be interested. But if you're using a basal reader that didn't have a phonics component, we were interested, right? So it wasn't phonics versus whole language. It was phonics versus no phonics. Uh, or phonics, more phonics versus less phonics. Uh, and and um, what we found was that this has always been controversial. What we found was that phonics instruction gave kids a clear advantage in uh, when we're talking young children in re reading words, decoding, uh, in spelling, uh, in reading comprehension. And with older struggling readers, it certainly helps them in word recognition. It doesn't necessarily, it's not enough to, to raise their comprehension, at least not in the studies that we uh, were able to look at. Um, and, and so this is clearly something that helps kids to, to, to uh, you know, figure out the code. And, and, and so explicit phonics teaching is what we were really looking at. We looked at 36, 38 studies on that and uh, just overwhelmingly clear that phonics instruction was better than either no phonics. E you know, even in some of these studies, even in the control group, the kids might have been getting some amount of phonics, but it wasn't you know, really being emphasized and, and so on, like it was in the experimental study. These days I'll hear critics saying, they didn't really find that phonics was better than whole language, that, you know, they really screwed up. Well, you know, we didn't screw up. We just, that isn't what we were asked to look at. That isn't what we were to find out. We were trying to figure out what you needed to teach to, to improve kids' reading achievement. And uh, looking at it, not against a particular program, but in all the different contexts that it's been studied in is, is how we approached it. And I think that's the, that's the best way to do it. Yeah. That's a good way of, of framing it because that's always how I've heard it is, you know, the phonics versus, but um, I, I think the framing you took was a more accurate or, you know, a, a better way of approaching that, I guess. You know, I think one way to think of this is less, you know, phonics versus this or, in a lot of ways, if you think about the entire report, all the different sections that you're going to ask about, every in every case, we found that explicit instruction in a particular thing was beneficial. And whole language was largely about implicit instruction. If you just engaged kids in reading and writing and language, they were going to get better at it, was the notion. You know, you the teacher was really less there to to guide kids or to tell kids what to do or to, you know, give assignments or to explain things. Teachers were there to sort of observe kids as they as they unfolded and, and, and moved in the right direction. And so they were really just there to sort of make sure there were books available and that the kids were engaged and, and that everybody was having fun. Uh, if you look at all the things we looked at in, in uh, the National Reading Panel, gee, teaching fluency, teaching comprehension, teaching vocabulary, it was always, what if we don't just leave it to chance that the kids figure it out through discovery and through experience, but we actually show them or tell them? <laughs> and, and so the way I've come to think about the phonics instruction, which as a, as a former first grade teacher, I can't understand why this has ever been controversial because it's so clear to me as a, as a teacher that when you teach kids something explicitly, they make much faster progress in it than when you just let them 
go and try to figure it out themselves. Uh, it, what, it, a lot of times when I'm doing workshops with teachers, you know, you'll have a, a large audience and, and I'll say to them, what if we were to take half of you and invite you to lunch today to tell you where lunch is and, and you know, we're going to buy you a steak and everything's going to be beautiful. The other group, we're not going to tell where the lunch is, you know, what would happen. And, and I think what you would find is if you took that first group that you told them where lunch was going to be, um, a higher percentage of those kids would get there. Uh, some of them wouldn't. There'd be people, you told them where the lunch was and they'd still screw it up. They wouldn't figure out where lunch was. They would, you know, uh, they went the wrong way. There'd be people in the other group, you didn't tell them, they'd figure it out. I can smell the steak. I think it's that way. Uh, my friend is in the other group. I'm going with her. Um, you know, that kind of thing. But overall, you'd say, wow, it's amazing. More of the kids in the group that we told where the food was going to be got there and fewer of the kids that we didn't tell uh, got there. Uh, it's not that if you teach this explicitly, uh, everybody gets it. You still can have some failure. And just because you don't teach this explicitly to somebody, you're going to have kids who figure out phonics because it's a system. You can figure it out. And, and kids do figure it out without explicit instruction. Fewer of them figure it out. It takes them longer. It's harder. Uh, why not just tell them? <laughs> why not show them how it works? Thanks for pointing out explicit instruction as, as sort of a, a, a meta finding across the whole report, the whole panel, because that that probably helps frame some of your findings in the fluency section with, with silent sustained reading. So let's let's shift to fluency. The the panel had sort of two major findings, one with guided repeated oral readings and then the other one with silent sustained reading. What did the panel state about these practices? And then, you know, we can frame it within the, the explicit instruction comments you were making. Sure. Well, when it comes to fluency, you know, what we're talking about here is really, can you read in a kind of a coordinated way? Um, you know, if you think about teaching phonics, I want to make sure that these kids are able to decode a whole bunch of words, right? So I might show them a word list and see if the kids can actually read those. Maybe they'll even not be words. Maybe they'll be nonsense words. They'll just be syllables that I'm, I'm going to show the kids. And it does, they don't have to have any meaning. I just want to see if the kids can sound these out properly and quickly and easily. When it comes to fluency, you have to actually be able to read text. You have to be able to read the tech, you know, the words horizontally. They have to, you know, coordinate syntactically and all that kind of stuff. And you have to be able to do it accurately and you have to be able to do it with automaticity, meaning you have to be able to do it without a lot of conscious attention to it. So you'll be able to think about the ideas in the text. You know, if, if you're spending all your, th you, you, the room in your brain is all focused on what's the next word, what's the next one. You might read the words, but you're not going to understand what you've read. So you've got to be able to do it so easily. And, and so usually we measure that through how quickly you're reading it. But speed isn't really the issue there. The issue is, can you do it without conscious attention? And can you make it sound like language? Can you have proper expression or prosody? Uh, do you pause in the right places? Do you, are you using the punctuation? That kind of thing. Uh, and so it's all of those things rolled together. It's a bit of phonics. It's a bit of, of reading comprehension, but it's a coordination uh, tap. And back in the 1970s, there were a couple of researchers separately came up with this idea that you could teach kids to be more fluent. Uh, it, it, essentially, you could teach them to apply their phonics uh, fluently 
uh, if you had them do things like repeated reading, where you'd read a text orally and then maybe try it again to see if you could do it better and that kind of thing. And there are different schemes for doing that. There are you know, many different methodologies, but they all involve having the kid read the text aloud, uh, getting some kind of feedback, you know, someone helps them with the words or tells them that they're, they, they missed a period or, you know, whatever. And, and, and uh, repetition, you know, trying it again, trying to get better at it. And, you know, so the, we were curious if you taught that, if, if you actually put that into classrooms, what would happen? And uh, there we had a, a smaller number of studies. There were, uh, when you look at direct tests of it, there were like 16 studies. But what those 16 studies found overwhelmingly was that if you had kids practicing their fluency in, in the kinds of ways I just described, their decoding skills improved, their fluency improved. Again, what you teach usually goes up and their reading comprehension went up. Um, and, and so, you know, we recommended you ought to teach that. Uh, and, and, you know, in the Chicago schools, when I was director of reading, I mandated that we literally, you know, everybody was supposed to be doing, you know, fluency work every day with the boys and girls. And it really makes a difference. It, it does. It, but it's, I think people get confused on this one. They go, well, he's doing that instead of phonics. This isn't instead of phonics. This is in addition to phonics. Uh, you know, you're, Maybe it'll help if I tell a story about where this even came from in the first place. Back in the 1970s, Carol Chomsky, who was at Harvard University, uh, and, and she was a very pro-phonics lady, but she tested a bunch of second graders uh, who were poor readers, even though their phonics skills were advanced. The, the kids did well on the phonics test, but poorly in reading. And so she came up with this technique on that particular way of doing this that she believed was aimed at a particular group of kids who for some reason knew phonics but couldn't apply it in the in the reading situation and so she saw it as teaching the kids to apply their phonics um and it, it worked in her study and uh you know for the next 20 years people all thought this was for a special group of kids you had to give everybody a reading test and a phonics test uh Finally, in the early 1990s, somebody said, why don't we just try this in first grades with everybody and see what happens? And what happened was it seemed to help everybody. There, were, there wasn't a special group of kids. Uh, and, and so, it, again, it's not instead of phonics. It's also not instead of reading comprehension work. And it's not instead of silent reading work. Um, but it, it is a, a, a practice that seems to give kids a, a clear learning benefit. So if, uh, if I can deviate from the outline here for a second, I, I've noticed that when I read studies pre-2000, they often don't have you know, a rate, but they'll include accuracy a lot. But post-2000, from the last 20 years, they include rate so, many, so much more as a, as a reported outcome. So is that in part due to NRP 2000 of establishing fluency or, or why, why do I see those discrepancies? It, it's certainly partly due to that. One of the things that came out of the National Reading Panel uh, report was something called Reading First where the federal government put $5 billion into reading, beginning reading programs. And one of the things that they were supposed to do was teach fluency. So that put a lot of attention on it. You also get the right around that time, just before that time, you get the creation of, of the Dibbles technology. Essentially, here's a way 
we can combine rate and accuracy and give you a little bit more complete measure of fluency than we used to have in the past, which I think is the big advance that uh, that dibbles and dibbles like measures gives us. These days, I think more and more people are looking and going, that's putting too much emphasis on the speed part of it. You know, you, you, it still has to sound like language, right? The expression has to be there. You know, you see kids trying to read as fast as they can so they do well on these measures. And that's not what we mean by fluency. Fluency is it has to sound like language. You know, that it, again, it's not about speed. We use speed to try to get at it, but it's how easily are you recognizing those words? How easily are you decoding them? Are you able to do it without a lot of conscious attention? Uh, these days, people are proposing some other ways of measuring that aspect of it to try to get around the speed issue. But that's exactly why you see that become more important and, and maybe too important in, in, in some ways. Very, very informative. I and I love that description of fluency of sounds like language. I, you know, just try to describe prosody as you know expression and stuff. But you know, even with my my six year old, it needs to sound like language, like we're speaking. Yep. So perhaps we can shift gears to silent sustained reading. What were the panel's findings on that practice, and and perhaps give us some some nuance around Ooh. kids reading silently at school. Well, yeah, again, this is one of those things that the world has said. This is about silent reading. And what it's actually about was we were curious, one of the ideas, uh, and you could say this is a whole language idea, but it's certainly a, a big idea in the 60s and 70s and 80s was if we would just get kids reading a lot, if we, you know, it doesn't matter what they read, but if the kids would just read, they're gonna, their reading achievement's going to go up. They're going to read better. Uh, and whether this is because that's going to build fluency or what, it, what, you know, the theories weren't very specific, but everyone agreed kids had to read a lot. And the way to get them to read a lot was make it fun, make them enjoy it, make sure they had a lot of time to read, make sure they had a lot of, you know, books that they might want to read and get the teaching out of the picture. You, you don't want those teachers bugging the kids, asking them questions and making them reread stuff. Uh, and, and so there were all kinds of schemes that came up for how do you get kids to read more? Because kids read, it's just that we need them to read even more so that they'll read better. You know, the more practice the idea was, the, the better they would be. And there were a whole set of schemes. A famous one, Pizza Hut. You know, if, if you read a certain amount, you get a free pizza for your family. What a cool that thing. Me as a kid, yeah. I remember getting those in, in first and second grade, yeah. Cool thing, right? That, that, that was the idea of that. That was the theory behind it. Another one that I used as a teacher was the one you mentioned, sustained silent reading. Or in those days, it was uninterrupted sustained silent reading, USSR. Um, and the idea was that you would you would have, or you know, it goes by other names as well, but basically the teacher would stop teaching for some length of time, like 20 minutes or a half an hour a day, and the kids would just go and read on their own. And you'd leave them alone. You weren't allowed to ask them any questions because it was going to screw things up. It would make it like teaching. And we, you know, teaching is going to hurt the kids, but if they're reading on their own, they're going to be fine. That was the theory. Um, and so, what we were really interested in wasn't so much whether practice is a good idea, but whether these various schemes for getting kids to read more were actually having any impacts on their reading achievement. And uh, we, we were able to identify, there's a huge amount of, of studies on this, but most of them are really poorly done and poorly designed. We, were, we came up with 14 studies that 
were acceptable that met our standards, 12 of those were actually of SSR, of that sustained silent reading. And then there were a couple of others, you know, where they'd gotten the kids to read during the summer or something. Uh, what we found was, um, well, we decided that there was too little research on this and it wasn't very good research, so we wouldn't come to a conclusion. If we had, if we put together the studies we had, our conclusion would have been, this stuff doesn't work, this stuff isn't benefiting kids. In fact, one of the studies, the kids who were getting SSR actually read less than the kids who weren't getting it. That the kids were, these were middle school kids, they decided, you know, I read at school, I don't need to read anymore. The other kids maybe go home and read because they knew it was good for them and they would try to do it. Maybe they'd get into the book and read it for a while. So we, we actually drew no conclusions there, but I think there, you know, personally, my own look, you know, not the National Reading Panel, but my own look where I'm looking at doctoral dissertations and other studies that were beyond our, our purview, um, frankly, those things just don't work very well. It's very hard to encourage kids to read enough on their own to improve reading very much. Now, I'm not gonna say nobody's ever done it, there are some studies. James Kim has worked on this over the last 20 years because of the National Reading Panel. And he's found he's managed not during the school day, but during the summer to get kids to read enough that you could get a really small improvement in their reading achievement. Uh, but boy, it, it hasn't been easy and it hasn't been very reliable. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And the effects when they are there are tiny. Uh, I do want kids to read. I think kids should read, but not instead of their school day. They need to work with, they, they learn so much more when they're interacting with that teacher over a book than when they're trying to read a book on their own. You know, the teacher will do things like say, read that again, you didn't understand that. Uh, you know, the teacher will ask questions that make the kid go, hey, wait a minute, I'm confused. I thought, you know, it's it, it just doesn't make sense to just turn kids loose and hope that they're gonna learn enough. So it's that instructional component that's missing. It's not that kids shouldn't be reading silently at school, but it's that it should be supported and 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 with instruction. Instruction is that what I'm hearing? Exactly, exactly. And 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 definitely encourage them to read on their own beyond the school day to whatever extent you're able to do that as a teacher, uh, and beyond the school year. But during the school day, yeah, I want kids reading all day long in social studies, in reading class, in science but that's reading that you're going to work on with the teacher and yeah that should be silent reading and that should be reading you're going to be held accountable for people are going to expect you to actually understand what you're reading and 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 they'll do something if you don't <laughs> they'll step in somehow and help you excellent thank you for sharing your thoughts on that let's switch let's switch to comprehension um one area uh, that, that you looked at was strategy instruction which is is in as a practice it's interesting i feel it's waxed and it's it's waned and and there's i feel some criticism out there right now about it um perhaps pitting strategy instruction versus background knowledge but what what did the panel find about strategy instruction and perhaps what might make it more or less effective um well the the panel looked at more than 200 studies on on uh, strategy instruction and though what we mean by a strategy is is there a particular way that a reader can think or operate on a text that will increase their understanding? You know, if, if you think about it, one of the reasons we said phonics was effective is it improved kids' reading comprehension. 
Uh, one of the reasons we said fluency instruction was effective is it improved kids' reading comprehension. Obviously, if you can read the words, if you can make sense, if you can read the text, you're going to read better. Uh, but in this area, what we were really looking at is, are there some things you can do more directly with meaning? And so, for example, here's a strategy. When you're reading a text, uh, Jake, what I want you to do is, why don't you read two or three pages? And at the end of those two or three pages, I want you to stop for a moment. And I want you to think about what you've read up to there and see if you can kind of retell it in your head. And if you can, read another three pages. And if you can't, I want you to go back and, and, and look at it again. Okay, that's your strategy. And, and when you read the next section, you're going to summarize again and right up to the end. Well, first of all, that's going to take you a little bit longer. You're going to have to think about the ideas more. You're, you might catch yourself if you're making some mistakes or not remembering stuff, because we all kind of fade away a little bit when we're reading. And, and so we looked at the studies on things like asking yourself questions, summarizing the text, imaging. You know, can you get a visual picture of what's going on in the text? But we also, some of the strategies were things like thinking about what you already know about this topic, background information, which these days it's either or. They were looking at it as here's an action a reader can take to get some control over this reading situation and to increase their understanding. Self-monitoring. Do you can I get you to pay attention to whether it's making sense? And if it's not, can I get you to do something about that? Um, you know, maybe you have to look up a word. Maybe you have to talk to somebody. Maybe you have to think about what you know about, you know, what do you do uh, if, you're, if you're not understanding the text? Uh, and so what we found was that that kind of instruction really helped. And we found that some of those strategies were more powerful than others. So something like summarization was more powerful than asking questions, than uh, uh, answering certain kinds of questions or, or uh, visualizing. Uh, we found uh, that the way that those strategies were usually taught is what's typically referred to as the uh, what gradual release of responsibility or gradual release. Of, in other words, the teacher models. I'm going to show you how to do this. It's what these days the term people use is, is what structured instruction. We weren't using that term then, but the teacher's going to show you how to do this. So let me, I'm going to read this text to you and let me show you how I'm going to, I would read this if I were reading this silently. And so, gee, I've read these two pages. Now I'm going to summarize for myself. And let me do that for you, show you what I'm going to tell myself. Now I'm going to read another two. You, you actually show the kids how. Then you have them do it under your guidance. Okay, boys and girls, we're going to try this summarization strategy that I told you about. First, why don't you read the first two pages? And then we're going to talk about it. You know, and, and But over time, the teacher is going to gradually let go of that. And so, boys and girls, we've read the two pages. What do I usually have you do at this point? Well, we're supposed to sum up what we've already read. Well, I want you guys to write a little summary for yourself today. And so the kids are taking over more and more of it. Uh, now what are we going to do? Well, we should read another section. We should summarize that. That's right. Okay, go ahead, guys. And then eventually, the teacher steps out of it altogether. And the kids try to do it all on their own, you know, independently. It's the I do it, we do it, you do it kind of model, which makes it sound a lot simpler than it really is. But you get the idea. And, and that's very effective. That actually shows kids how to use these, these uh, models. And so we concluded that teaching kids to use comprehension strategies 
huge amounts of evidence on that showing that's a really good thing to do, that that does improve kids' comprehension, and we should be showing them how to do that. And again, that's pulling that that explicit thread, you know, once again, that it's showing the processes that good readers use when they read. It's helping it make that available to all of your students, the ones that would figure it out on their own and the ones that, that wouldn't figure it out. That's exactly own. right. Can I just, you know, you, you mentioned this controversy right now about strategies versus knowledge. If you go back and read the literature on strategies, which of course we had to do as, as panelists, one of the things that you find is the people proposing these strategies, uh, one of the things they, they were just very, very strong in saying it wasn't enough that kids were learning the strategies. They had to come away from a reading when they practiced their strategies with knowledge. They had to learn the information in the text and don't, you know, don't get into this. Well, prediction, they did a really good job with prediction. They didn't understand the science at all, but they did a really good job with the prediction. They have to, as they're learning to do the strategy, they have to be learning the information from the text. So it was never an either or thing. I think it is in a lot of classrooms. I think it is in a lot of programs, but I don't, that was never the idea in the research. That's one piece that's really important. If you're teaching strategies, you still want kids to come away comprehending the text and remembering the information, important. The second thing that's really important is the studies on strategies were not so specific or so thorough uh, to tell us how much strategy instruction is important. And I think a lot of us have concluded with 20 more years of research and a lot more insight that at times we overdo this strategy thing. Uh, it's a good thing to do. I don't want people to stop teaching strategies, but in a lot of the studies were like six weeks long or eight weeks long. And you know they'd teach the strategy and the youngster could do the strategy at that point. That's turned into like a 12-year or a 13-year curriculum. There's probably a lot more strategy instruction than is needed or useful. And, and so there are other things we could be putting our attention into that the strategy instruction is just insufficient. Yes. Thank you for providing more uh, detail on that and that strategy instruction. It needs to be uh, you know, it, rooted in the process of comprehension. This isn't something isolated that if, if a kid can make a great inference that they're going to be a great reader. They have to make an inference in the service of understanding a text. Is that exactly exactly? And I'm afraid we, as teachers, we get wrapped up in. My goal is to teach the kid to make inferences. He made some inferences. They were really dumb, but he made inferences, so we won and let's go forward. And that's not really what we're saying. You you might need to come back tomorrow, teacher, and do this one again because he's not really getting it. Uh, he's not really using the text information. He's not really using his knowledge. Um, you know, he might be doing an inference, but that wasn't the point. Um, and I, I do think that gets lost. It's it, teaching's tough. Uh, and you know, when when you're up to your neck in alligators, that you know, the old saying is, it, it's easy to forget you were there to drain the swamp. Uh, you know, my statement is, if you're up to your neck in six year olds, it's kind of hard to remember you were there to teach them. You know how to sound out a particular word. You know, you get you get wrapped up in stuff. <laughs> that is such an accurate description of a classroom. <laughs>
Um, so what were some other findings that uh, that the panel had on comprehension that um, that you feel worth sharing? Uh, well, a couple of things that I'll highlight. Um, I, these days, you know, we pointed out one of the arguments in the field is, is it strategies or is it knowledge? And, and certainly one of the strategies that was looked at was those strategies that it require you to use your knowledge to make sense of the text or to combine your knowledge with the information in the text. And those were effective. So obviously that's not an anti-knowledge thing. There's a second kind of debate going on these days, maybe a little less uh, uh, argue, argumentatively, uh, between is it more important to teach things like strategies or written language? You know, teaching kids vocabulary, teaching them to make sense of the sentence structure, text structure, those kinds of things, cohesion, how you link the ideas across the text, and so on. And a couple of things I'd like to point out there. Uh, one, the panel uh, within the comprehension report looked at 45 studies on the teaching of vocabulary and found that the explicit teaching of vocabulary and morphology was beneficial to kids. And so there's a piece of language. That's not all the language stuff, but that's an important piece. I think everybody agrees today. And that I think the National Reading Panel was important in that. Uh, another uh, thing that was in the National Reading Panel report as one of the strategies was working with text structure which has people have continued to do research on since that time. And it's really clear that's one of the more powerful strategies. But I think a lot of folks these days would say, that's not a strategy, that's language. <laughs> so, uh, you know, clearly there are other aspects of language that the national pa panel didn't look at uh, that should be taught as well. These days, when I tell people about reading comprehension, I say, you know, you obviously you have to teach strategies. You also have to teach how to make sense of written language, including all those parts I talked about. And you've got to build knowledge. You've got to do all three of these things. You know, it's not one or the other. They're all important. They all play a really critical role. Uh, in some ways, I think uh, comprehension strategy instruction, it maybe plays the smallest role of the three but it's a useful one. Uh, I, I, in most schools, we can't afford to give up achievement points. Uh, and, and so I'm not willing to give them away because somebody thinks if they push the pendulum, teachers will do more with language or do more with knowledge. We have to do all three of those. It's not a choice. It's not, uh, <laughs> all of them are good for kids. So I'm hearing a lot of ands that it's not, it's not strategy instruction or knowledge building. It's, it's both. It's not right. fluency you know, I mean, it's it's the the it's panel found that yes, and 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 these are all beneficial and when, need to work together. When I left the panel, when the panel's work was done, I was uh, invited to be the director of reading of the nation's third largest school district, where I was responsible for the reading lives of four hundred and thirty-seven thousand children. Uh, I mandated that we uh, give kids substantial amounts of instruction in phonemic awareness phonics, oral reading fluency, vocabulary, reading comprehension strategies. Um, I would do that again today. There might be some additional pieces that I would put in there, but I, I would definitely do that to, today uh, because, uh, frankly, the research continues to support those things. So that helps uh, transition into our next question of, I'll see 
some folks, and, and usually it's on uh, Twitter for one reason or another, but they disregard the findings of NRP 2000. They say either it's old or it's irrelevant, or they didn't consider this one aspect. So the whole thing is, is flawed. What would you, what would you say to those folks? What is the role of NRP 2000 in the year 2020? You know, this notion that research is sort of like milk. And if, you know, if the, the, the date on, on the carton uh, has gone past, you, you have to pour it down the sink. That just isn't the case with research. There are only two things that will overturn a research finding. Uh, one of those is circumstances can change pretty dramatically. You know, let's imagine that uh, over the last 20 years, uh, America had uh, decided that all four-year-olds are going to go to preschool. You know, I think it's probably about a third now, but let's say it's 100%. Uh, my hunch is there'd be a lot of children learning phonemic awareness in preschool and kindergarten. And so our recommendations that that be taught in first grade would be out of date. They would, they'd be wrong because it wouldn't be needed anymore because it would have already been accomplished. That would be one way that it could go away. And, and obviously we've had some changes in education over 20 years, including the COVID uh, you know, pandemic that we're going through right now. The fact is none of those changes have changed what you need to learn to be a reader. So I don't think there's anything there that would change that. The second way that you can overturn a research findings is with new research that shows either, you know, maybe you were looking at it wrong. Maybe, you know, there's, uh, you know, something wrong with those original studies. What we've seen over these 20 years in each of these areas where NRP had positive findings, um, more studies, uh, finding the same thing, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it, it's it, the, the findings are even stronger. I mean, it, 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 phonics would be a good example. There aren't a ton of new phonics studies saying, you know, does phonics work? People sort of gave up on that with the National Reading Panel. They decided, gee, it must. And so then if you look over the last 20 years, there are a number of phonics studies, but they're usually well, this particular group, what if you teach autistic kids phonics? What if you teach, you know, this kind of a group phonics, what will happen? And again, just quite consistently, oh, it's just like with the other kids, it's beneficial. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, what you'd see in all of these is, wow, uh, the studies continue to find that those are beneficial things. There are things we didn't look at. So, you know, if somebody says, well, I wouldn't include writing instruction uh, because the National Reading Panel didn't look at that, that'd be a huge mistake um, because there's a substantial body of research showing that if you teach writing in certain ways, you can improve reading achievement. And so I think you'd be crazy not to include that, but it wasn't part of the National Reading Panel. But there's, there's nothing that's come up where you say, wow, clearly they've overturned those findings. In fact, in every case, the findings are stronger now than they were 20 years ago. So no, I, people who say that just want to get out of something. <laughs> They're trying to win an argument. They're not trying to solve a problem. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, so then the next 20 years then, what does that hold for, for NRP 2000? You know, the panel, when it, it like I say, we, we were not to make any recommendations, but we did make a suggestion to Congress that they, they actually put uh, a series of these panels in place for the future so that reading research would continue to be monitored uh, the way that medical research is monitored so that as new findings come up, uh, you can make changes and additions and, 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 and rethink things. 
uh, they didn't choose to follow our our suggestion on that, which I think has, has been a big mistake. These days, I, I sort of feel like we're we're drifting back into the reading wars, uh, and and perhaps we're going to uh, maybe need another uh, you know group of people to come in and do a, a similar kind of a a panel study to say where are we now. I think if they did, uh, you know, that that picture would get richer uh, that NRP put out, but that would still be the core of it. Um, you know, they, they would still be saying, yeah, you have to teach these things. There might be some cautions about not teaching too much uh, of, of reading strategies. There might be uh, some conclusions that, gee, using the school day for free reading might not be your best choice in, in, in terms of using the time that maybe there's enough data now to, to point that out. Uh, but overall, I think you'd be saying, gee, it works about the way they said it did. Um, you know, remember, we weren't stating opinions. We were telling you what the research found. Re the fact that research continue, you know, after 38 times or 51 times or 16 times or 45 times or 204 times is finding something. Don't be surprised if the 46th or the 37th study finds the same thing. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Or, yeah, we probably shouldn't be too surprised about that. Thank you for a fantastic conversation, Dr. Shanahan. You do a lot of work of bridging research, uh, literacy research into practice and work with practitioners. Where can teachers go to find out more about your work there? What I would really love if they would do is I've got a, a website. There's no commercial stuff on my website. It's it's there's no bad language. There's no you know, it's it's nothing but um, uh, and there's no politics. It's it's nothing but but uh, you know free reading resources. There are no costs to it. Well, there are costs. I have to pay to run the damn thing. But <laughs> there's there's no uh, uh, no one has to pay anything or buy anything. Uh, I put all my powerpoints up there. Uh, if I have uh, articles that uh, I've written that aren't um, uh, copywritten, those are there. I, I link to all kinds of other free resources. So if you know, even parents want to, you know, find things that they can do with their kids, that's all linked there. And I, I publish a blog where I, I put a blog entry about 36 times a year uh, that can be actually, if people subscribe, can be sent right to their mailbox. In fact, some schools are actually, schools and school districts subscribe to it, uh, you know, so that all their teachers get the same thing and they can all talk about it and so on. Some of those articles get people really going because I, I tell what the research says. And a lot of times that isn't the way we're doing it. So people get mad, uh, but that can be interesting and informative. So I would really encourage them to go to Shanahan on literacy and uh, good luck to them. Thank you very much. Dr. Shanahan, final question. What do you think makes a great teacher? Uh, geez, you know, I was asked this question before I was a teacher when I was just about to have my first classroom and I fumbled around to try to give an answer and I gave some kind of a stupid answer like uh, the teacher has to pay attention to the kids, you know, see if they're really. And a couple of years ago, having done this now for 50 years, <laughs> you know what, <laughs> I'm back to that point. <laughs> That's still, you know, I think it's really important that teachers pay attention to the kids. You got to see what's going on in their eyes. Um, I had a, that's why this distance learning thing is so difficult for some of us. Um, so much teaching is, is being responsive. You know, you know where you're trying to take kids explicitly, but you've got to see in their eyes whether they're understanding, whether they're actually going on the trip with you. And that can be so hard to do, you know, electronically. 
uh, that, that, boy, I hope we get through this quickly. When I was a graduate student, uh, I had, one of the things I had to do is work in a reading clinic. And the professor one night uh, who was running this clinic uh, brought us all together and said, I've got a quiz for you. One question, what are the colors of the, of the child's eyes that you're working with? A lot of us didn't do so well. <laughs> we hadn't paid any attention to the kid. We knew what we wanted to do. We, know, we knew what we wanted to teach. You have to look at the kids, pay attention, see what they're feeling, and teach. Excellent. Dr. Tim Shannon, thank you for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. Good luck to you. A great big thank you to Dr. Shanahan for joining us on the show today. I walked away from our conversation with a whole new outlook on NRP 2000. I feel I've learned a lot and uh, very grateful for the time that he spent with us on the show. One thing we didn't mention on the show is that the results of NRP 2000 are available on the internet, that you can go and take a look at this document for yourself. It's several hundred pages long, so you might want to pick and choose, but that is listed in the show notes for you to look at. Two quick thoughts from me. My first thought has to do with the fish discovering water last, which is what I felt like when I was reading NRP 2000 for the first time. It was a few years ago. I was in uh, Dr. Parker Fawson's, uh, I was in one of his classes, and for a project in that class, I, I read NRP 2000, and I was blown away while I was reading it because I felt like the proverbial fish that was discovering water last, that reading the panel sub-reports, I felt very strongly that it framed so well not only literacy research, other literacy research that I was reading, but also what classroom practice felt like and what I was seeing in professional development and in curriculum. And after I read NRP 2000, I felt like almost like I had a superpower that I could just see literacy instruction in a whole different light than I could before. And I hope you you sort of feel like that too. I hope that by listening to Dr. Shannon talk about it, that you can see what, how we got to where we're at with literacy research and that there still is quite a bit of value of NRP 2000, even in today's classroom instruction. So uh, it's very beneficial, I think. The next thing I want to talk briefly about is this relationship or the intersection between research, practice, and policy. And ideally, those would all be aligned, but we know that education is very complex, and sometimes those things aren't three perfect circles overlapping, but it's more like a Venn diagram. NRP 2000 is interesting in the sense that it is one of the few things that occupies that very middle part, that it has a solid place in research, a solid place in practice, and also a solid place in developing policy. And perhaps that's why it is so influential, is because it can stake a claim in all three of those things. Now, this is a podcast that is primarily aimed at the practice part of that, or talking with practitioners or classroom teachers. And so I would say our role in this is we need to seek out what works, so research-based practices. We need to understand why it works, because once we understand why it works, then we can adapt it into our classroom. And I know that is no small task, and I know just the day-to-day -day teaching is just challenging and it's hard, 
but I also believe that as we can align our classroom instruction with what you know research evidence is this good practice that we're making our jobs a little bit easier and we're doing the students a favor as well and uh, oh yeah we all have to do it in face masks this year so we'll just add add that onto the complexity but that is all I have for the show today great big thank you again for joining me on the show if you like what you heard on this episode or any of the other episodes it would just mean the world for me if you shared it with a colleague so i wish you the best of luck in our covid 19 school year um good luck teach the best of your ability and until next time let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better Thanks for listening to our conversation today. Remember to check out the show notes for more details. If you have feedback or a show idea, feel free to email me at teachingliteracypodcast at gmail.com. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast, and until next time, let's go and teach literacy just a little bit better.